The Send Network podcast is brought to you by The Send Network, a digital community for Send practitioners to connect and collaborate. To find out more, head over to send-network.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome to season three of the Send Network podcast. I'm Izzy Felton, and to kick off the season, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Tracy Hakim Alloway. Tracy is an award-winning psychologist specialising in memory and the brain. She is the author of 15 books and over 100 scientific articles, and has featured on Good Morning America, Forbes, The Washington Post, BBC, and more. So thank you for joining me, Tracy. Thank you, Izzy. It's such a delight to be here with you. Today, we're going to be talking about how to support children and young people in the classroom who experience difficulties when learning maths, also known as dyscalculia. Around 6% of people have dyscalculia, and many also have other neurodiverse conditions, including ADHD and dyslexia. However, studies into the causes of dyscalculia are about 30 years behind research into dyslexia. We're going to look at the what, where, why of dyscalculia and then focus on the different strategies educators can use to support children and young people in the classroom. So we're going to start with the what. Uh, So Tracy, can you tell me what is dyscalculia and what signs are there that teachers and SENCOs can look out for in children who might be struggling with it? Yeah, such a great question. And as you pointed out, such an important issue, as we do know that research is slightly lagging behind when we compare it to reading difficulties. Nonetheless, it is definitely a very prevalent difficulty in students of all ages. And so as educators, it's important to be aware of some of the early warning signs. Now, this could range from things like telling the time It could even manifest itself as difficulty with shape identification. So a young student may get confused identifying the difference between a circle and a square, for example. Um, It can also manifest with simple addition or multiplication. And it can also exhibit as the student appearing to be forgetful or not paying attention when we look at automatic math problems like, uh, you know, automatizing the multiplication table, like two times two is four. So we can have a range of symptoms. And that may be in part one of the reasons why it's difficult uh, that research hasn't quite caught up with the same level as reading difficulties, because there's so many potential signs of a math difficulty when we compare it to a reading difficulty. But as educators being attentive, that math is characterized not just by one type of uh, skill set, but multiple, everything from shape identification to telling the time to, of course, our simple math equations like addition, subtraction, and so on. Brilliant. Uh, and now we're going to go on to the where. So this is the the sciencey bit. So for any of our science fans, they're going to really enjoy this part. Um, Which parts of the brain do we use when solving maths problems? Yes. So this is, as you said, the sciencey part. We do know from research that there's something called the IPS, that in the same way that if if we think of reading as an analog or a parallel to maths, uh, with reading, we know the Broca's area, the language center is involved with the reading or 
automatizing or making things automatic, if you will, when it comes to reading. So the math part of a brain also makes things automatic. Researchers call this number sense. This idea that we know that five is bigger than two or two is smaller than three. That's what researchers call number sense. And there is a part of the brain known as the IPS that is specialized for automatizing or automating uh, this math uh, level of knowledge or math skills. In fact, it is so crucial and so well uh, tailored for math knowledge that uh, recently Stanford researchers actually found that with students in in, uh, preschool or, or primary education or elementary education, that part of the brain is working the hardest when they're doing simple addition, subtraction, even multiplication. But what they found was there's an interesting shift when they looked at college students and gave them the same math problem. So again, addition, multiplication, they were no longer using the IPS. And instead, they were using a different part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is typically the home of working memory. That's the part of the brain where we're actively concentrating, we're thinking of the problem, we're trying to pull that together, thinking that, okay, I said three times Seven, what does that mean? Where do I pull from? And the reason we see the shift is because as we get older, we no longer use these math problems on a automatic. We don't do mental math as often. So we don't need to automatize these processes as much. And so we kind of ignore this IPS part of the brain. And we now shift to our prefrontal cortex, the front of the brain, and where it, it re- involves more effort. So the reason I bring this up um, is because that a student who's struggling in math may not have that automatic knowledge, this library of number sense, of math knowledge automatized. So when a teacher says, what is three times seven, instead of immediately pulling that up as 27, they have to stop and think, maybe even count, maybe use their fingers. They might say, okay, I know that three times five is 15, so I have to add and then add and then you know keep going that way. So they're using that prefrontal cortex. So we do know that there is a brain region specialized for math knowledge, but in the cases of math difficulty, that region may be underused or underactivated. Uh, I can imagine a lot of people like myself uh, thinking I definitely should maybe practice my, my mental maths a bit more because I definitely don't use it as much as I used to. So it makes sense, though, why, why that doesn't work anymore in your brain and why it changes you get older. And we've all got phones now where we can, you know, exactly. get up on the calculator. <laughs> uh, and because of these parts of the brain that are activated when solving mass problems, can neurodivergent people be affected differently? Yes, we do see that manifested differently, where for some students, they might be able to automatize, say, the addition portion. So they may have you know, put together the different pair bonds that make up 10, so 2, 8, mm-hmm. 7, 3, and so on. But multiplication may be more complex for them. They may be having, you know, they may learn a different way. They may learn visually or auditorily. And as a result, they, we may see gaps in different math skills over others. And that, again, can pose a challenge for educators where they may seem puzzled. Why can a student do addition and subtraction or maybe do addition, but not subtraction or multiplication and not division? So we see that sometimes math difficulties are not always pervasive. In other words, it's not a broad brushstroke that we can say, oh, if Susie has a math difficulty, it'll look exactly the same in Johnny and vice versa. They can exhibit or manifest quite differently as a result. 
And you've already mentioned working memory. Um, so this is the why part now of the podcast. Why is working memory so important when we're discussing this calculia? And this is really the heart of my own research activities for the past, you know, over a decade, really. It's it's why is working memory involved in learning more generally and then more specifically in learning needs or learning differences. And in our current conversation, we're talking about math specifically. And so you can think of working memory as your kind of notepad in front of your brain where you are keeping everything active. And when you have to do a word problem, it's your working memory that's in the front of the brain pulling from your broker's area. It's that language area thinking, okay, I have to read this problem, first of all, then I have to understand this problem. And now I have to pull from a different part of the brain, that IPS that we talked about. And I have to think now if, you know, Bob had five pencils and gave two away, how many does he have left? So you have that memory portion, you have that language portion. And of course, you have that math portion where you have to think, do I actually know how to solve this problem? Am I using addition, subtraction, and so on? And pulling that all together can be very overwhelming. And you did briefly mention at the start of this podcast that we can have what's called comorbidity or multiple difficulties. And so if a student also has an attention problem, you can imagine it's challenging for them to then keep track of their place. So it's a lot, uh, a lot of working memory involved. And if the student has poor working memory, it can further jeopardize their learning success when it comes to maths. And now onto the most important part for our educators and SENCOs, uh, which is the how. So what different strategies can educators use to help students with dyscalculia? Such a great question as well. And uh, one that, as you mentioned, is ultimately the most important part of the why we do what we do as educators. Um, one thing that we do know is that working memory uh, tends to be the visual part of working memory tends to be impaired when it comes to math difficulties. So students can use visual representation, encourage them to take notes, encourage them to circle key points in the word problem, encourage them, you know, rather than moving and requiring them to do mental math, allow them to lean into that visual strategy or visual support to boost or scaffold some of that math learning. Sometimes as educators, we're so focused on saying, well, we want to cultivate the skill of automatizing or having this mental math proficiency. However, for a student with uh, math difficulties, that may be and continue to be a challenge throughout their life. And so allowing them to have that scratch pad, that, that workspace where they can physically write it down shifts the burden away from their poor working memory onto something that they can represent in front of them. Another strategy, so that's the first, is to use that visual support, uh, you know, actually a, a concrete form like that. The second strategy is to reduce working memory processing. And so simply that means that instead of a two-step problem or three-step problem, can you give them one step at a time? So with word problems, you can reiterate, you can say, how many pencils did Bob have? First of all, does your memory intact? Can you identify the key features? Now, second thing, what did Bob do? Did he give it away? So then we know it's subtraction. Did he receive more? We know it's addition. Um, and so just breaking it down step by step for the student can really assist them in that learning process. And to go along with that, we know that educators have amazing tools, resources, visual aids. And here I would encourage them to continue to use that in any way possible to reduce that processing load uh, in students with um, 
with maths difficulties. So those are the two more general working memory tools that we can use as educators. Then we have some specific strategies. One is specific to math is how can we automatize math facts? Maybe they have a lookup table for Again, those number bonds that make up 10, those multiplication tables. So again, we want to eliminate that um, stress, that processing load. And something that we haven't touched on, uh, but I'd like to bring up at this point now, is that math anxiety is one of the most common anxieties that we see in the classroom. And there is a, a, a large, large body of research Again, unpacking the why, whether it's learned from a parent, learned even from a teacher, perhaps, where that math anxiety may be communicated indirectly from an adult to the child. It could be learned in the child, a sense of learned helplessness where they failed once, they failed twice, and now they've built up the sense that I can never do it right. I'm I'm going to you know disengage. I'm not going to participate for fear of failure. So again, we want to remove that anxiety from again compounding the maths difficulty. And automatizing is an excellent way to do that because you're saying there is no failing when all you have to do is look down, look at that multiplication table and find where you need to, you know, get retrieve the answer from. So again, we want to take away that anxiety, take away that built up sense of failure that the, the student begins to accumulate over, you know, multiple uh, difficulties. We also, as educators, a second tip that we can do specific to math is to model the memory aid. So not only give them the aids, but say, here's how we use it. If we're using counters, if we're using blocks, if we're, you know, whatever those, if we're using calculators, how can we use these? Um, and then also a part of modeling would be to provide a sample solution all the way through. So if we have a word problem, what does that look like? How can we highlight everything? And allowing them to then keep track by looking and then using that in their own independent learning. Just some general metacognitive skills that we know is that students can also benefit from paired learning. So it may also relieve some of that anxiety where you can have a more able student assist with a, a, a student that might be struggling. So you have a win-win. The student that's more able doesn't feel frustrated that they're waiting around and feeling bored. The student that might be struggling feels like it's not the teacher that, you know, may then be saying, are you doing this correctly? But appear that we can work together. Um, another way to do that is uh, give quizzes. And this is, you know, um, it, it has to be used with some caution. But the key here is that the research shows that even if the quizzes aren't graded, you will see an increase in learning because the students are shifting from what's called shallow processing to deeper processing. So while they might say, okay, yeah, I've used this, our brain is efficient. When they've come across a model, an example, they might disengage. They might think, I've seen it already. I don't need to focus, so I'll just skip over it. But when they're being quizzed on it, even if they never get a score back, even if the teacher doesn't grade that, the student is encouraged to, to work with that, to use that, to apply that information. And that encourages deeper processing of information, which will then facilitate uh, greater learning. Amazing. That, that's a great, <laughs> great having all them strategies. Made me think back to when I was at school and one of my favourite things that um, one of my teachers did was write in different colours on the board. So I could remember, you know, different parts of, of where it was on the whiteboard and and like what colour it was. And that really helped me with, with maths. And um, so it can help everyone. <laughs> yes, I love that example. <laughs> and you mentioned as well maths anxiety and, and how sometimes that can even, you know, come from, from a teacher. Uh, so 
how can we feel more confident as educators or just in our everyday lives in our own math skills? And this is really something that has become more prevalent, even our post-COVID education era, where we're looking now in the mental health field. And we can look at simple language changes to, you know, kind of reframe the way in which we approach a problem. So a teacher or even the student can be encouraged to switch their language instead of saying, I can't do it. They can say, I can't do this yet. So those simple words like that yet, or um, I'm working on it, or I'm learning, um, instead of so changing that negative to a positive, to even focus on what they can do. So we have multiple ways that we can change, but ultimately reframing is what the literature shows is most powerful. And language is a way to do that. So using words like yet, or right now, so I can't do this yet, or I can't do this right now, or instead of, and I can't, what can I do? I can do um, addition up to five, so up to 10, so up to whatever that number might look like. So again, you're reframing or shifting that perspective to what you can do and then building on that. So these are positive ways that even the teacher can encourage. And it's something that can benefit all students to say that, okay, instead of having that sense of frustration or learned helplessness that we just talked about, let's use words like yet. Um, let's use words like right now. So we acknowledge that this is where we're at, but we also acknowledge that this is not where we're going to remain, that we can move beyond that. That yet is kind of a temporal marker, a time marker that says, yeah, but by tomorrow, I'm going to learn a little extra. Uh, and again, uh, part of that could in encourage students to use goal setting behavior. What would they like to learn? So sometimes that learned helplessness involves a loss of control or what we call in psychology, loss of agency that we feel like, okay, I'm failing. I can't do it. You put your hands up. I'm stepping out. I am not in control. But that goal setting puts a student back in control. What would you like to do? Maybe we'd like to be able to have one out of five questions correct by the end of the week, you know, we'd like to do two and then build on that. But the student now has that uh, agency back in their own goal setting and it's working away from learned helplessness into agency. I love that idea of, of making ownership of our own agency and, and not being scared of failure. So we've come to the end of the podcast and we always like to do our three takeaways from the episode. So let's summarise, what are the three key strategies that educators can take away from this episode and apply to the classroom? Yes, I would break them down into three, as you suggested. The first is a working memory strategy, and that is we scaffold our visual working memory with using concrete representation or tools or notepads that the student can use. The second is math specific, where we can work on automatizing math facts, either again, providing those models or visual aids that are math specific to help them. And the third relates to our mental health or anxiety in the context of a math difficulty, and that is to use reframing language, words like yet or right now, or even what can you do and encouraging goal setting behavior. Love that. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us on the Send Network podcast at first episode of series three. Honored to be here. I loved it. If you enjoyed this episode of the Send Network podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. For more information and resources on the topic we spoke about in today's episode, please head over to send-network.co.uk.